Hey, deserving listeners, there are essentially three different kinds of families, according to family systems theory. You have healthy families that are operating healthily and adaptively, and they function well for the most part. You know, they have issues, but uh, they're handleable. And then you have disengaged families, which are distant, pathologically distant. And then you have enmeshed families, which are pathologically over-involved. Sometimes people think that enmeshed families are very close, but they're actually not close. Uh, it, it, there's a distance in their over-involvement. They'll appear to be close from the outside. They talk to each other a lot. They know a lot about each other. They can even have a lot of love for each other, for sure. But underneath, there's a pathology of over-involvement, a pathology of requiring other people to think and behave a certain way, a lack of individuation, that sort of thing. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about enmeshment because it's pretty complicated, actually. And it's something that I've been concerned with since the beginning of my career in marriage and family therapy 25 years ago. I have also been teaching it for the past 20 plus years, and it's a complicated uh, topic. I often find that uh, it requires a, a lot of explaining, a lot of examples, a lot of exploration for people to really understand what enmeshment really means. Disengagement, di you know, pathological distance in families is pretty easy to understand. You know, people don't really recognize each other's needs. They don't know what is going on in, the, in each other's lives. They don't respond very quickly or, if, or at all to each other's distress. They don't even notice each other's distress because that's the style of the family, and, and that's pathological because it doesn't help people to get the support and the love that they need. Uh, but enmeshment is harder because enmeshment, a lot of people, when they look at the, you know, enmeshed families, when you ask them, uh, you know, how are things going? They'll think, oh, we're close. We're healthy. You know, we're better than other families. We love each other, all these kinds of things. But upon further investigation, some of these families will actually determine, wait a second, I think we have too much involvement in each other's lives. And there's this, there's some unspoken rules that... I haven't even really allowed myself to evaluate because the internal questions are threatening to me and to the family, and maybe there is something going on here. And so that's what I want to talk about today in, in detail. Uh, upper, upper tier patron Maria uh, asked the following question that relates to this. I was wondering if maybe you could do a deep dive on enmeshment in families. What happens when, with the best intentions, parents become enmeshed with their children? What are the long-term effects for the children? How does it affect adult relationships for the children? In my case, I am an only child, and I grew up in what I think it was an enmeshed relationship with both of my parents, particularly my father. My parents are basically good people. They love me, and they did what they thought was best, but they had emotional issues of their own, like attachment issues regarding their own parents, that made them not wanting me to fully grow up so that I would always be by their side. My dad used to promote economic dependency in me, for instance, and my mom would open my letters and even listen to my phone conversations. Oddly, growing up, I felt that their love was somewhat conditional and that maybe if I failed them in some way, they would become really angry and not love me anymore. Now I am 44 years old and I live 10,000 kilometers from them. They visit every year and our relationship is better now, maybe because of the distance. I decided that it would be better for me to get away from their meddling and their judgment. 
but sometimes it is still not easy. For example, they do not like my husband. And there was a point a couple of years ago when I wrote a letter saying that I would not tolerate some things and also saying that growing up, I felt I could not be myself sometimes because we had to explain everything to each other and we had to agree on everything. Although it was a hard letter to write and send, things have improved since I sent the letter. Now they respect my privacy and my boundaries more, and I feel I can say what is really on my mind. I just want to say as well that I really love them and they love me. Lately, I even feel like my mom is like a good friend, and in some ways, they both have helped me when I needed it. End of email. Yeah, so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about enmeshment, um, you know, this uh, upper tier patron Maria presents a, you know, very good example of enmeshment. You know, why are families enmeshed? Where does it come from? What effects does it have on the kids? Uh, what is the concept? What do healthy families look like? What do disengaged families look like? Um, what are the attachment underpinnings? You know, why do, why do people do this? Why do people act this way? Why do families operate this way? And I'm also going to talk about a, a brand or a flavor of enmeshment that we call enmeshment and conflictual, which is enmeshed, but it's, it's different than the one that Maria is presented, presenting. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I teach in a marriage and family therapy program. And I am also a podcaster, and I am someone who cares a lot about this topic. <laughs> um, this episode is, is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you are not a patron, you will not hear the rest of this episode. It's going to be, I don't know, an hour or so of material. If you are a patron, then you're going to hear the rest. So if you are not a patron and you want to hear the rest, then go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast, and you will get instructions on how to gain access to this episode and on the hundreds of other episodes in which I do deep dives into various conceptual topics. So become a patron. Do it now. All right. Welcome to the patron zone, people. Okay. So enmeshment, what is it? Well, first of all, um, I will tell you, Maria, that good for you for advocating for yourself and trying to create a more healthy family. You uh, had a, you know, a choice that you could have, there are several choices that you could have made. You could have decided to, and you know, further enmesh and just live the rest of your days in that kind of configuration with your parents. Or you could have just distanced yourself completely from your family and cut yourself off from them as a reaction to their meddling and their judgment. But instead, you chose the healthy route, which is to talk directly to them about your needs. And you advocated for yourself, and you must have navigated it um, well enough, and your parents must have navigated it well enough, that you have emerged on the other side with a new homeostasis in which the family is now less enmeshed, which is great to hear. It's, as a family therapist, I've worked with a lot of families and individuals on exactly this thing, adults reaching out to their parents, trying to reconfigure their relationship, not to push their parents away, but to create a new, perhaps even closer relationship, which is what you have established for yourself, Maria, which is just fantastic. So uh, just a quick note on the history of the, of the concept of enmeshment and disengagement. Most of our understanding comes from Salvador Mnuchin, 
uh, one of the you know founders of family systems theory and um, and his team of researchers and clinicians back in the 1960s when they were working with families they discovered th- that there were three different kinds of families. You had healthy families, you had disengaged families, and you had enmeshed families. If you want to hear more about Salvador Mnuchin, listen to my deep dive on him that I did a few years ago. And as always, if you're trying to access older episodes, you always want to go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com. And if you want to uh, go to the patron episodes page, that then you'll see all the exclusive episodes and you want to use um, the password for that. So there are other terms that we'll tend to throw around when we're talking about enmeshment. Sometimes they'll say lack of boundaries. I, I don't like this phrase. It's um, a sort of slang, a common phrase that non-clinicians will tend to use. The more technical uh, way of saying it is that they are diffuse boundaries versus being rigid or healthy. Diffuse meaning that there's too much uh, you know, diffusion between the two sides. Uh, a lack of boundaries implies that there are no boundaries, but there's always a boundary. There's always a boundary between mother and child. It's just a matter of it of the boundary being too diffuse, being too permeable. Uh, a lack of boundary implies that the two people aren't really even in a relationship. So uh, the the slang colloquial phrase of lack of boundaries is technically not accurate and so i encourage all of you listening particularly if you're clinicians to stop using that phrase and to uh, blanch and cringe on the inside every time you hear someone say it because the way that i do <laughs> so that the, the more accurate way of saying is diffuse boundaries or too permeable over involvement uh, also sometimes people will call these families centripetal families as opposed to centrif- centrifugal families centripetal meaning that there there's forces pushing people inwards instead of outwards so again we have three main categories that Mnuchin and his colleagues developed uh, and provided with us enmeshed disengaged healthy or adaptive enmeshed is overinvolved pressure to conform anxiety about distance Disengaged is indifferent, detached, and non-responsive. Healthy or adaptive is, you know, close bonds but flexible. There's a balance between the needs of the family and the needs of the individuals, and there's relatively low anxiety about distance or disagreement. So as I was talking about earlier, I find that people have a hard time figuring out if their family is, is healthy and adaptive or enmeshed. And I see this a lot in my family of origin class. So family of origin is a class that I teach for first quarter students in my program. And I've been teaching it for over 20 years. I love the class. And part of it is, or the big uh, central feature of the class is that the students who are training to become therapists and counselors are now trying to discover the bases for their countertransference for their issues that will get in the way of their ability to um, see clients accurately and um, handle clients and and treat them effectively. And one of the modules that we go through has to do with um, how enmeshed and disengaged or healthy your family was. And what I find is that, uh, uh, and it always happens this way, it's one thing about, you know, becoming, you know, being a teacher for so long, you just see these certain patterns that are just so typical to students. There's always uh, two to three, four students 
in my class because my class is, you know, generally around like 12 to 16 people. So about a third of the class will, uh, after hearing the full lecture and discussion and doing assignments and writing papers about their family, they will conclude that their family was close and that there wasn't any dysfunction. But upon, uh, you know, further thinking about it, doing more exercises, more um, more exploration, some of those students will tell me, oh, my God, I think I just realized that my family is enmeshed and I was in denial about it. Now, I'm not pressuring students to do that. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that is like, you have to admit that your family was fucked up because certainly there are families that aren't fucked up. In fact, I don't know half or a third of families aren't particularly fucked up. Every family has its own issue. Every family has its own tendency towards enmeshment or disengagement. But, you know, you could have a family that's like 80% healthy and 20% enmeshed, for example. Uh, but a lot of times what I will see is I will have students by uh, week seven of the course will tell me, Oh my God, I just realized that my family was absolutely enmeshed and I've been in denial about so many different things. I can see it so clearly now. There's something about enmeshment for people in the families that makes it hard to see. Uh, One big reason for that is because when you are in an an enmeshed family, as a child, it, it helps to not think for yourself too much. It also helps not to think bad thoughts about your family, because if you you learn when you're in an enmeshed family that if you have your own thoughts and if you evaluate your family critically, that you will see bad things and then you'll be motivated to do things that are in opposition to your family, which will result in bad things for you emotionally, not necessarily punishment, but emotional um, punishment, like your parents might emotionally punish you. Again, not abusively necessarily. It can be abusive for sure, but it can also be very subtle, like a slight pulling away or a passive aggression or a little bit of a silent treatment or something like that. And it's very anxiety provoking to the child. And over time, you learn as a child that it's better, you know, it's better that I just don't even recognize the fact that this family has issues. And so it takes a while for that to strip away before. Kids, adult, adults, kids from enmeshed families can see the enmeshment. So again, just going into the there's a the big differences between enmeshment and closeness because there's a lot of confusion about this because you know some some families it's like they taught uh, you, you 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 might be one of those people or maybe you have a friend like this who they talk to their parents every day on the phone. And you're like, wow. And you might look at that and you might be like, wow, that's over-involvement. That, you know, I don't do that. I talk to my parents once a year, every day. That's over-involvement. There's something crazy about that, right? Well, uh, not necessarily. So that could just be them being very close. There's, there's really no way to know. So the difference is, is the emotional communication about those behaviors. So when a family is merely close, um, healthy, and adaptive, there's good, there's good bonds. Uh, they might be very involved in each other's lives, and they might not. Uh, they might only talk once a year, or they might talk every day. That's not an indication of enmeshment or disengagement. And that's, I want to be very clear on that, because a lot of people will be like, okay, 
You know, if you talk on the phone every day with your family, you, you're enmeshed. If you talk in a balanced way, culturally, like once a month, then you're healthy. And if you talk only once a year, then you're a disengaged family. No, 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 no. <laughs> I want to be very clear on that. You have to, you cannot just look at a family in terms of their behavior and know where they are. You have to be inside the emotional uh, field of the family to get a feel for like, what, what are the emotional messages going on here? Is there pressure to do things? Is there undue pressure? Is there intolerance of certain individuation behaviors that uh, are, are present? So with a healthy family, you will have good bonds. Um, they might be heavily involved in each other's lives. They might not. Uh, but the key is, is that it's flexible. And that's the word I want everyone to remember is flexibility. Uh, healthy families are flexible. You could, you know, you could have a highly involved family that it talks to each other all the time. They know everything about each other's lives. But when an individual has a need to pull away, has a need for distance, the system reacts in a flexible way to accommodate that person's need. The system is not anxious, overly anxious about that person's movement away from the family. The members are free to choose between closeness and distance. There's no emotional uh, atomic bomb that goes off when someone decides to think for themselves and act for themselves. So I hope that makes it clear that it, it's, it's the emotional messaging and the pressure put on individuals that differentiates close and healthy families from enmeshed and dysfunctional families. So by, in contrast, you have enmeshed families that are inflexible. And so you can have an enmeshed family that only talks once a month, for example. Sometimes we call this fusion. That's another issue of, you know, sometimes fusion is synonymous with enmeshment. And sometimes fusion just means that there's a problem that can manifest as disengagement or enmeshment. If you're a student of family therapy out there, you know, maybe you should know that for the rest of you. Probably it doesn't matter. But anyway... So with enmeshed families, they are inflexible. They can feel like a loving family to the outside and on the inside. And there is love, but there's a requirement for that love. The way that Maria talked about how it's like, you know, I felt, you know, I knew that my parents loved me, but I felt like it was kind of conditional on the enmeshment, you know, that the family is is prioritized much higher than the self is. And there's a lack of balance there. And I'll get into that more of that later. So essentially what enmeshment is, is that the family has a need. Every family has a need for closeness, attachment, and security, right? Every family wants to feel like there is love in the family, particularly when you are, you know, you're, there's children in the family. Every child wants to be loved by their parents deeply, and every parent uh, wants to have a connection with their child. And if there are adults, adult parents in the family, they want to have a good attachment. So there's all this need, and, and for, for many of us, it is the primary thing in our lives is the attachment and security and closeness that we have with our uh, close family members, right? And that can, you know, that can involve other people, extended, quote unquote, extended family as well. But anyway, we, so every family system has this need. 
And that's the way we phrase it. We don't we could we could phrase it as the individuals have the need, but really we we can just say as a unit the family has a need to be close. That's one systemic notion is that we can treat the family as a as one unit, as a system. And the family as a unit believes that they must be enmeshed in order to get that need for closeness met. So uh, it, there's a there's a notion in in the family. There's a family rule, if you will, or a routine, a, a structure to the family, in which they unconsciously and somewhat consciously adhere to the notion that the only way to obtain that closeness is through enmeshment. You know, they they want to get from A to B, and the only way to get from A to B is to take the road of enmeshment. There's no other road that will get them there. That's the way the family thinks. And it's usually due to past experiences that the parents had in their own uh, families of origin. So they believe that movement towards healthy boundaries is actually going to break up the family. They have anxiety that if you allow people to be flexibly close and distance at times, depending on the needs of the individuals at, at the time or the need of the system at the time for that matter, they have this irrational belief that's really deeply ingrained in their bones that that will actually result in the family flying apart. Now they won't say this out loud because it's not conscious. Some, sometimes people will, but you know, that when you'll have a child that will be moving away from the family a little bit, you know, the child will be individuating, as we say, a little bit. And a parent might say something like, you're destroying our family. So they, they might say something like that. But typically, day to day, these kinds of things are really unsaid and really unknown. It's just the way that you operate, um, which, again, I'll get into more later. So some of you might be thinking right now about your own families or about families that, you know, I, I, we have listeners all over the world. A third of our uh, listeners actually don't even live in the United States, and the United States has a wide variety of cultures as well. And some of you might be thinking, well, you know, some cultures you're you're really involved, and other cultures you're not so involved. So are you saying, like, some countries have a lot more enmeshment than other countries? And the answer is no. Uh, cult, you know, different cultures, different societies have, you know, as most of us know, have different norms regarding how involved people are within their families. For example, Korean families, it's widely known um, it's among Korean people and also among people who work closely with Korean people. As an Asian American myself, I've worked very closely uh, with Korean clients and also Korean friends. And Korean families, in general, not always, are highly involved in each other's lives compared to, say, white Protestant uh, Seattle families. You know, white Protestant Seattle families, uh, Anglo, uh, Northwestern European descendant families tend to be um, uh, on one end of the spectrum, meaning that they tend to... uh, uh, culturally value or feel it's normal to be quite distant. I mean, you'll, you'll, you, you might have this experience out there. You know, you might be like, um, maybe you're in a culture that is highly involved, like Koreans or Mexicans, or really most of the world. The families are highly involved. The, the, the Seattle way of living and the the Northwest European descendant way of living is actually uh, not the norm around the world. You know, Indian families, uh, Indonesian families that, you know, they tend to be way, way more involved, not always, but in general. And 
you might look at each other and say like, whoa, you know, yeah, Korean families are enmeshed. You know, they're, they're so enmeshed. Or Korean families might look at uh, white Seattle families and think, whoa, you guys are way too disengaged. You know, because like uh, for a white Protestant family, you might literally never talk to your family on the phone. You might only see each other at big holidays and the conversations will be very, um, you know, I don't know, on the surface. But there's a lot of love and there's a lot of dedication, even though if you don't come from that culture, you might look at that as a very cold, unfeeling, unloving way to live. Okay. On the other side, you have people that are talking every day on the phone. Uh, They, you know, the doors are wide open to the bathroom. People are going number two in the toilet and the siblings walk in and the parents are asking very personal questions. And and if you're not from that culture, you might look at that and go like, whoa, they're over-involved. No, 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 no. The key is, is what are the emotional messages and is it flexible? Okay. So for example, you can have a Korean family where the parents are heavily involved in their adult children's lives. It's not uncommon for Korean parents to uh, have a lot of commentary and a lot of emotional messaging around what the adult child does for a career and particularly who that adult child decides to marry. So, you know, uh, so you're a Korean um, you know, you're a, you're an American born, your parents are from Korea, you're American born, Korean American, and you're 30 years old and you, you decide that you want to get married and your parents are not happy with your decision. Okay. So we, we would look at that, you know, in terms of my heritage, which is Japanese American and, um, you know, Northwestern European American. And I would look at that and I'd say, wow, that's over-involved, you know, for parents to, you know, have an opinion and not value their own children's, you know, decisions about who they're going to marry. That that seems like too much. Uh, but we have to go into that family as family therapists and really investigate, you know, what's going on here? How, you know, what are the norms here? How, you know, how do, how does everyone interpret that? Because, now, so from my perspective, I see nothing good about that. But to the Korean family, it might actually be seen as neglectful for the parents not to have at least some pushback or at least some questioning to make sure that their child is marrying the right person and not going to be hurt. You know, because for the from the parents' perspective, they're saying, for me to love my adult child. I should be very concerned about who my adult child gets married to. To the Northwestern European American family, they look at uh, you know their children and they say, well, I love my child so much that I'm going to stay out of it. It's just a cultural notion, and I hope, I hope it's clear that that makes sense. Now, the, chi- the child in the Korean family, it depends on how they receive it. If they receive it, you know, the 30-year-old woman who has parents who are being very involved in the decision as to whether or not she should marry someone or not, she might interpret that as, well, that's my parents showing that they love me. It's annoying, but, you know, it's, it's how it works in Korean culture. And if they weren't doing that, then I would actually kind of worry that 
they became that they've become distant from me and they don't care about me anymore. So um, although it's not, you know, it presents its own problems, it actually is expected and, you know, we'll get through this. I know my parents will not um, disown me or fall apart. Now, in contrast, uh, you will have Korean families that have dysfunctional enmeshment. So I'm not saying that Korean families can't be enmeshed. In those situations, what you will find is that those parents will be, you know, overly, quote unquote, on the spectrum of things, very highly involved in the, their adult children's decision to get married to whom and, and, and when and how, for that matter. But when the child pushes back or, um, ha, you know, expresses their need for individuation or expresses their need for support for their own decisions, those parents in this enmeshed family will not react well to that. They, uh, they will dig their heels in. Or the child won't even stand up to the parents. The child won't even know what they want in relation to the parents. They only know they don't want what their parents want, but they don't know what they want on the, on the inside. So uh, there's subtleties there. And I I want to be very clear on that. You cannot look at a family, particularly if it's cross-cultural, particularly, and know if there's enmeshment or not. I see this all the time. I have many trainees who will present on a family and they'll be like, okay, clearly enmeshment because, you know, they talk on the phone every day, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because you see signs of what culturally to you looks like enmeshment and is different from your culture does not mean that that family is enmeshed. You got to get into that family emotional field and you have to start describing to me and convincing me, since you're you know a trainee of mine, that there is actual messaging regarding requirements and harm and guilt and a lack of self and a lack of self-esteem, a lack of assertiveness that's really happening in this family. And you have to know what's normal within that culture. Because for some cultures, like, for example, in, in Korean culture, it's it's normal and functional for adult children to look like they have a lack of assertiveness to, say, a white Seattle family. So even though it looks like they have a lack of assertiveness, uh, and and the, the adult child might even say that I have a hard time being assertive with my parents, but you have to you have to get in there and you have to understand how family, how Korean families operate. It's hard. And this is why a lot of people avoid family therapy, to be you know, honest. <laughs> I mean, one reason why people avoid family therapy is because individual therapy is hard enough. And then you involve like family members in the office you know, with you. It's just, you know, utter chaos for a lot of people. Some people uh, hate it and some people thrive in it. I'm one of the people that thrives. I love that chaos. Um, the It's always exciting. There's so much that can be done. But another reason is that it's so hard to figure out what's going on because, you know, the, in, in the scenario I'm talking about, you have Korean parents who were born and raised in Korea, and then you have this uh, child who was born and raised in Seattle and has you know, a majority of their friends are, are non-Koreans. And what, is, what does that mean? You know, who's right? <laughs> and as a therapist who might, you know, say you're not, you weren't born and raised in Korea, you're just lo- you're looking at the parents. You're being like, man, these parents are so weird. They're so overbearing. But then, when you're aware of things, you ask your question. Well, wait, am I imposing my culture on them? And well, what do I do about that? It's a very confusing question. 
you know, just because something is quote unquote cultural as which I always sort of laugh at because everything is, is cultural. Um, but when people say that, so it sounds like a cultural thing. Um, it, that doesn't mean that it's okay. You know, just because it's, uh, the norm in the old country doesn't mean that it's healthy there, you know, like if we did the opposite, like, okay, an, an American family goes to Korea uh, the Korean fa- the Korean therapist shouldn't look at the American family and go, well, that's that's an American thing, so it, therefore it must be healthy. Okay, we we can see the ridiculousness in that. You know, just because something looks American doesn't mean it's healthy. In the same way that just just something looks or is typical to Korea doesn't mean that it's healthy. Very complicated, very weird. And as a therapist, since you have the power and the privilege, you have to really, really watch your um, colonialization of families. Um, it's 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 a question mark. There's it's and that's why family therapists have to consult and think about things so much. But anyway, so uh, okay, where was I in my notes? <laughs> okay, so the signs, um, the sign. So I'm going to present the signs that a family is enmeshed. So the signs are is that uh, and and not all these so not all enmeshed. What I should have said at the beginning is that what there's probably two billion families on the planet. We cannot fit all two billion families easily into three categories of enmeshed, disengaged, and healthy. That's just not possible. So as I go through these signs, know that for some engaged for some um, enmeshed families, you will find. A majority of these and for some you will not so it's but as i go over the signs you'll get a better picture of like the gist of what we tend to categorize as enmeshed families and again the underlying reason for all these things is anxiety about losing each other it's not about you know power trips so the signs are the parents will know a lot about the child's life and the children will know a lot about the parent's life the child will have very few secrets sometimes because they can't or they don't want to because they feel the pressure. The parents will have high anxiety about what the child is doing. And, you'll, you know, you'll see this sort of thing. It's like, you know, what's the child doing at school? How is the child doing at school? Is the child getting along with other people at school? Is what's the child doing in the other room? Is the child playing with, you know, toys the right way? Is, is the child doing their homework the right way? Is, is the child upset? Is the child angry? Is the child sleeping? You know, just lots of anxiety. It's like, what is the child doing? The parents uh, sometimes don't like closed doors or they don't like restriction of access to their children. That um, is, is, again, motivate. Every parent wants access to their child, <laughs> but uh, there can be an, a, an overreactivity and, and, and a, um, you know, undifferentiated high anxiety regarding a lack of access. So some of these parents will react very strongly to closed doors or locks or even passwords, this kind of thing. Uh, the parents will be anxious when there is disagreement sometimes. So when there's disagreement in the family, uh, the family and the parents will in particular be anxious when there's a disagreement. The parents will often use guilt and shame to shape their child's behavior. Statements like, how could you do this to me? Things like that. Instead of a more healthy statement of, so I understand why you did that, but, um, but I don't like that you did that. Um, I love you, but I don't like that you did that. 
Um, why did you do that? Can we talk about it? You know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, was it that you were angry at the time or, you know, some kind of more balanced, more, more, uh, uh, so you're close and you're being attuned and you're reacting, but you're not invading a question like, how could you do this to me is a, uh, an impossible question for a child to answer, Right. And the child is given some very clear messages around around that, around what the parent is feeling at the moment. The parent is upset with you. You know, if you've ever had a parent say that, it's like, how can you do this to me over what seems to be like a minor thing? Like, I don't know, like you decided to go to a different college that they, you know, didn't want or you decided to date someone that they didn't like or you decided to wear an outfit that they didn't like or um, I don't know. Uh, you maybe your parents got divorced and you didn't choose that parent to live with or something. Um, you know, how could you do this to me? There's a message that, you know, your parent is upset at you. Um, you, your efforts at trying to individuate or your just, you know, impulse, impulsive decision has really deeply hurt your parent. And, your parent is pleading with you on some level to change uh, what you do. There's a there's a message there around like f- from parent to child that you know, look, child, you are responsible for my happiness, and that is not a message that k- kids usually do well with. Um, it, children need to feel like their parents are in control and have things under control and are not dependent on them t- for their happiness. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of expectation there of just like, you know, please make mommy happy by picking up your toys. There's, you know, it depends on what's being communicated there. But um, in enmeshed families, a lot of times the parents will give this message. It's just like my life depends on you doing what I need you to do. And my life will fall apart if you don't do that. And my emotions will fall apart. Uh in mesh families, the siblings might lack a bond outside of the family, outside of their parents. Sometimes uh, parents will sort of weasel their way in between the the uh, sibling bond. But not always. The parents will have a parenting style sometimes that involves a lot of negotiation and accommodation. You know, pleading with your child. You know, please, will you please pick up your toys? You know, I, I'm so tired right now. Can you please pick your toys? Instead of, you know, more advanced parenting approaches, more functional, effective parenting approaches. Uh, the children might lack independence and a sense of competence. You know, they, they might develop a dependency, not always, but sometimes the family might engage in passive aggression, like using the silent treatment or, you know, when you're a, the parent is upset, they might secretly violate the child's privacy when the child is trying to individuate. Uh, there is often a requirement for frequent communication, not always, but often, um, again, there's nothing wrong with frequent communication. You can, you can talk with your parents every day. That doesn't mean enmeshment, but there's a requirement for it. When, when people don't engage in it, there are guilt trips and shame and passive aggression. The family might talk a lot about loyalty. Again, nothing wrong with loyalty. My, my family is very loyal to each other and we're not enmeshed, um, I remember at a very early age, my, my family, my parents would talk about how important family is. And, you know, there's a lot of talk around that. Um, but 
so talking about loyalty is an enmeshment, but when it's a requirement, when when uh, it's uh, you know when loyalty is brought up in op- as a way of um, controlling a child and stopping that child from moving away from the family system, then that's enmeshment. Family members will often feel compelled to get involved in each other's business. They'll get in. They'll get involved in. So, you know, you have someone who is struggling with a job or with a marriage or with house remodel or something. Other family members will just feel compelled to sort of get in there. You know, there's an anxiety about like, oh my God, you know, brother John is having issues with his bathroom remodel. I, I've got to start calling around and getting contractors, even though brother John doesn't want you to do that. You know, there's this anxiety about, oh no, I need to do something. Um. Anxiety and tension will move very quickly throughout the system. So uh, when someone is suffering or when there's tension between two members, the the emotional, uh, you know, fallout from that will move very quickly across the system as opposed to disengaged families where it won't move around the system at all. No one will even notice healthy families. It'll move around a little bit, but it won't move around as quickly. Family members will quickly notice each other's emotional state and react. So it's very common for enmeshed families to be very perceptive of each other's moods and to react very quickly to that. Again, there's nothing wrong with noticing each other's moods, but there's something about having high anxiety about each other's moods, meaning that, oh, no, uh, you know, uh, sister Jenny is having a bad day. That and then unconsciously, the family feels that that bad mood is actually a threat to the family closeness and they will, um, you know, have high anxiety and then they'll overreact to it. Uh, Children are often triangulated into the parents' marriage and into the parents' adult relationships, meaning that the child will be pulled into the conflict, meaning that the parents might vent to the children or the Parents might need the child to be the star in the family in order to um, uh, distract from the parents' difficulties, or the child might literally be a, a therapist to the parents in their conflict. Um, sometimes this happens in you know in divorced families, right? Children might become parentified in these families where they have to take care of the younger children or even take care of the parents themselves. The children might be the primary attachments to the parents as, the, as opposed to the parents having their own primary attachments with each other or with other adults. The children might feel responsible for their parents' feelings. The children might feel compelled to become nosy. I've seen this a lot in families, in mesh families that I've treated you. One of the first things that I will do structurally is I will try to get the parents alone in a session because I want to establish that the par- there's a bound, there's a difference between parents and children and families and that um, the parents need to understand their role. And so I will physically separate the parents from the kids and some kids will, and, the, and a lot of, you know, and say the parents are cool with it. Well, the children might not be. The children might, you know, I'm, I've been framing a lot of the enmeshment as coming from the parents, and it often is initiated by that, but it's perpetuated by everybody. And you, you can have a five-year-old child that will be very reactive to any movement towards um, de-enmeshing a family, and the child can become very symptomatic and very demanding as a way of trying to pull the family back. Again, because the, fa- the five-year-old has uh, been taught through example that uh, t- those kinds of 
behaviors are associated with with very bad things, and they're hyper vigilant about it, just like the parents are. Um, and the children can become very nosy into the parents' therapy and the parents' lives. Enmeshed families are more likely to go to therapy because they are more communicative. They're they're more um, aware of each other's problems. Obviously, healthy families, um, they don't need therapy usually, and so they're not necessarily likely to go to the therapy, although even the healthiest of family needs to be in therapy, in my opinion. Um, and... And disengaged families are are not likely to go to therapy because they don't even notice that there's a problem because they're so much in their own worlds. So you, uh, oh, and um, some enmeshed families can have, the last thing I'll say is that some enmeshed families can have distant family members. And so this can be part of that nuance that makes it hard to detect. So essentially you'll see someone that's, um, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, I, I never talked to my parents and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is underneath the reason why this adult child is not talking to their parents is because they fear enmeshment and they fear the judgment, they fear the guilt trips. And so even though behaviorally there's distance, it actually, once you get underneath and you start looking at the emotional uh, messaging and the emotional reactivity in the family, it's actually enmeshed. So again, it's complicated. And sometimes when I teach this, um, students will say, you know, so let me give you my case and they'll present a case. And, and some of you are probably thinking this right now. It's like, well, you know, I kind of feel like my family was somewhat enmeshed and somewhat disengaged and somewhat healthy. And that's fine. You know, again, we're talking about, I don't know, two billion families across the planet. The chance that everyone fits neatly into one of the three categories is silly, is, is low. Some families have mixtures. Again, the, the, it's not, the categorization is not the point. The point is to understand what the anxieties are in a family system and how they cope with it. And it's totally conceivable that a family could have high anxiety about losing each other and about attachment insecurity and, and have both enmeshed ways of coping with that anxiety and disengaged ways of coping with that anxiety. So, uh, so that's important to remember. Having said that, usually families tend, when they have dysfunction, they tend to have a majority of their coping skills in one category or the other, but not always. And some members can be more disengaged and some members are more enmeshed and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but the signs you mentioned, patron Maria, upper tier patron Maria, is you suspect that you had an enmeshed family, so that's a sign. Your parents had attachment issues uh, with their parents. So again, that's another sign because when there are attachment issues, it tends to produce the need for uh, dysfunctional um, coping, such as uh, disengagement and enmeshment. You got the feeling that they were threatened by you growing up. It's a very enmeshed thing for a child to feel like. Your dad used to promote economic dependency. You know, usually this takes the form of uh, the father saying, I'll pay for your medical insurance, I'll buy you a car, I'll pay for your rent. You know, you you can't really function, and, and they'll give subtle messages sometimes that your the dad doesn't really believe that you can do things on your own. And so it has this sort of self-perpetuating nature to it of just like, so, um, you know, the dad is giving you messages that they that they want you to be on your own but they don't think you're ready yet and they pay for your bills and 
for you, you're like, well, it's easier just to have my dad pay for my bills. And then when you start actually venturing into independence, you start to have that normal anxiety and your dad picks up on that because you're enmeshed and they, and your family quickly steps in to alleviate that anxiety by fixing your problem before you're given a chance to really, um, you know, try to figure out a way to fix it yourself and, and begin to have a tolerance for that anxiety. Um, you talked about how your mom opened your letters and listened to your phone conversations as a classic enmeshed family thing to do. You felt that their love was conditional based on the enmeshment style. You deeply feared their anger. When you became an adult, they meddled in your life and they were judgmental of your decisions. They don't like your husband. This is a classic enmeshment thing. Now, why wouldn't they not like your husband? Okay. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you (laughs) from a life of experience that a lot of parents are not super keen on their children's choice of a spouse. It's just, you know, sometimes they are, but it's just a hard thing for some families. It's like, well, you know, I'm glad that my daughter is happy, but I'm not really into that person that much, you know, and that's fine. And a healthy family can navigate that difference by saying, well, you know, I'm sure they have a great relationship and I'll do what I can to have a bond with that person. Uh, But, you know, if I had my choice, I I wouldn't have had them marry that person. (laughs) But they keep that to themselves and they don't, you know, uh, make it a big problem. To an enmeshed family, they'll make it known, you know, and they'll believe that they're right. They'll believe like you're making a big mistake. You know, that person is a loser. They're, They're not good for you. Um, I can't believe you're doing this to me, that kind of thing. Uh, Another thing is that you chose to live 10,000 kilometers from them. For those of you in America, that's, what is that, um, 6,000 miles? So 6,000 miles? 6,000 miles? 6,000 miles, like it's 3,000 miles across the United States. So you you live on the other side of the planet from your parents, right? Am I... Am I reading that right? Um, so that's a big enmeshed thing to do. You know, the children will react. They'll be like, I got to get out of here. They will often um, go to college far away. Um, they will often move far away. Now, sometimes it's just circumstantial and it just has to happen, but um, it's a sign, you know, particularly if the child is like, yeah, it's better this way that I don't live near them. Um and you talked about how your relationship is better because of the distance. It's not necessarily a, an enmeshed thing, but it's it's a minor sign. Okay, so to review some things here, overall, the reason why families do this is not because they want to control other people or be a jerk or invade other people's lives. It's because underneath all of that behavior is a deep worry of a loss of security in relationships. A deep worry that they will be alone in the world and um, will never be able to get people back. This is a central feature to all humans, this desire to be close and connected. And for people, uh, when they worry about that security because of their past, they will develop pretty elaborate and somewhat dysfunctional or self-defeating coping styles, one of which is enmeshment. And so... Uh, the uh, res- this results in, and this is kind of review because I've talked about some of these, but just to be systematic about what enmeshment results in, 
is ironically a deep fear of losing attachments. So as the um, you know family puts all this effort into establishing closeness through enmeshment, through guilt, through shame, through control, through over-involvement, through invasion, through um, you know lack of privacy, you give this message to everyone that, look, if you don't follow the rules, we're going to reject you. And that's what you experienced, patron Maria, was that you felt as even though you knew your parents loved you, you also felt like that love was somewhat conditional. And that's the message that you're giving people is like, um, I love you and I respect you as long as you do what I tell you to do. And as long as you follow our family rules, which involves being over involved and being open and disclosing a lot to each other. And uh, if you don't do that, then, you know, I'm going to get real upset because um, I, I will be very threatened by that and I'll get very angry. And so even though there, you know, these this coping style is supposed to actually, uh, you know, solve the problem of attachment insecurity, it actually perpetuates it through that conditional love. And everyone en- ends up walking away from that pattern feeling like they're not really getting the true love that they want. Um, it also uh, enmeshment also results in hypervigilance about closeness and distance. The family members will be very perceptive of each other's state of mind and 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 their emotions, and the the members won't be able to tolerate any sign of displeasure or or upsetness um, in the family system. It's very hard for them. They're hypersensitive to these signs because. Um, they're they're somewhat paranoid about the loss of their relationships. Sometimes they can become somewhat delusional about these things. Like a child turns thirteen years old and wants to show and wants to close their bedroom door. And for enmeshed families, for some, they might consider this a sign that the child is uh, distancing and is rejecting them and is going to be lost to drugs or to the outside world. And this will. Uh, produce some somewhat delusional thoughts of the mind of just like, well, if my daughter's going to close her door, that means that she has a big problem. That means that she's being a big, you know, jerk, and and I have to confront her on that. Or just you know, people having different opinions. You know, some if if you ever if you've ever run into this, you you know what it is. I've run into it. Is that you know you're close to someone, you're really close, and you realize that you disagree on something. You have a different opinion about something. And for some people, that can be so threatening um, that they will believe that they absolutely have to change your mind. And they will say, no, 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 you don't understand. And, and even though you're, you're like, well, wait, it doesn't really matter that we have this different opinion. Like, can't we just agree to disagree on this? Lots of people disagree on things. It's fine. They will be extremely uh, delusional about what it means to not extremely delusional, but somewhat delusional about what it means to disagree. And they'll be very anxious and they'll get um, very upset at you and they'll want you to change your mind. And ironically, this effort to preserve their relationship actually um, causes the relationship to fall apart because when you're being told that you have to change your mind no matter what, um, that's not going to go over well. Either you're going to reject and say no and then the, the relationship blows up or you're going to give in but secretly secretly resent and distance yourself. So these these kinds of, again, coping styles will you know create the problem it's trying to avoid. People will tend to be overreactive to each other in general, particularly when there are signs of distance. Another aspect of this that is often overlooked is just deep rage that everyone will have. Um, there's... When you're controlled, when you're invaded, when you're scared, when you're not loved unconditionally, you're hurt and 
you also get very angry naturally. But in enmeshed families, you can't really be angry in, in all the time. Um, there's, there are enmeshed families that are very angry, which I'll get into in a second. But generally speaking, enmeshed families will find the need to suppress their anger, not for just certain circumstances, but for everything. And so you'll see a lot of enmeshed, you know, people that graduate from enmeshed families will, uh, not always, but will tend to have a lot of rage, you know, a lot of anger that is just below the surface because it's been building up for years. There's also a lot of dysfunctional triangulation. Um, if you want to listen to my episodes on triangulation, you can listen to the past ones. But in general, it's when a third element is brought into a conflict between two people. And so you'll see in meshed families, they'll gossip about each other. They'll talk about people behind their back. Um, they'll drag people into conflicts. Other people will invade other people's conflicts um, instead of just letting it be. Um, also, in uh, enmeshed families, you'll see a lot of psychogen psychogenic maladies and, and problems like, um, you know, you know uh, irritable bowel syndrome, migraines, fatigue, mysterious pain. Now, there's no way to know that these things are psychologically created, but um, you, in, anecdotally anyway, and I think some research actually shows this as well, is you'll see a greater rate of this when there are stress in people's lives. And being in an enmeshed family can be very stressful. It's also... The, the theory goes is that because the person is out of control and they can't really live their own life, they can't really individuate that much, that they will have this tension. The emotions have to go somewhere. And they, you know, these, the enmeshed families tend to suppress individual emotional expression, at least the flexibility of it, and particularly when it's counter to the, you know, the narrative of the family system. And so that energy has to go somewhere and it can go into uh, your, you know, fatigue and bowel problems and that kind of thing. Um, the other thing that you will see is that people will start to over control uh, part of their lives. So uh, you'll see kids who will control their eating. Even young kids like four year olds will just become extremely uh, controlling over what they eat and how they eat. The idea goes is that the children are feeling overpowered and not heard and they don't have any control or power over their lives. And so they have this need for at least some semblance of control and they want some say in the matter. And because in their regular life they're not given any control and any say, they will find something to control and there's things that kids absolutely can control, much to parents' chagrin, things like eating or going to the bathroom or when they sleep or their schoolwork or, or what friends they have, who they date, how often they're on their phone, that kind of thing, you know, whether or not they're into heavy metal or punk rock or, you know, gangster rap or something, you know, these are things that teenagers can control. And so, uh, and it's hard for parents to exert control over, particularly as they enter teen years. And so if you're in a overly controlled environment and meshed environment, Sometimes the kids will compensate by controlling things. Sometimes it, like it can be overt things like who they date and what music they listen to. But sometimes it can be very covert, like how much they eat, um, you know, what they eat, when they go to the bathroom, how much they sleep, you know, little secret little things that they can control. Uh, stealing, you'll see people from enmeshed families will sometimes engage in a lot of shoplifting. 
because it's their it's the one thing they can control and it feels good to have at least some semblance of control even though it's very private um you'll also see another number of other effects in the children like the the children will generally have a lack of self because they're not given a chance to develop a self they might become dependent they might become preoccupied or borderline in terms of attachment they might have uh, anxiety about distance from others because they've been taught that. They might, again, like their parents, have paranoia about the thoughts of others. You know, they, they'll, they'll sort of assume the worst in other people and try to control that. They'll be very anxious. You know, they, they sort of learn all the things. Low self-esteem, low value on boundaries, again, repressed rage. They tend to be more immature and they tend to be more irresponsible. Not always, but enmeshed family kids tend to be uh, more immature and, and more irresponsible. It depends on what we mean by immature, but, um, you know, just less independent, I guess. Um, okay, so let's talk about treatment. No, no, let's talk about the two different flavors. So I've been talking about, mainly what I've been talking about thus far is non-conflictual enmeshed families. So, you know, Maria describes a non-conflictual type in that she's not describing any kind of overt fighting or ongoing rage between the members. She's talking about how she recognizes that they love her and there's a lot of love in the family. Usually this type of enmeshed family is less pathological, not necessarily, but usually it is. And there's you know less attachment insecurity. There's this other type of enmeshed family that we call conflictual enmeshed, which there's it's similar to what we've been it's, – it's everything's the same as what we've been talking about so far. But – because there's generally a higher level of attachment security, or perhaps it's just the coping mechanism that they were taught in terms of like you have to enmesh in a conflictual manner, but usually it's because there's more attachment insecurity, the, um, there's an even greater need to enmesh. And when there's a very high need to constantly enmesh, then you're going to have more overt conflict. You know, a uh, teenager who comes home and, um, you know, has a bad attitude. The parents aren't going to um, just give you subtle messages that they're upset at you. They're going to yell at you and they're going to say, you know, you're a piece of shit and things will escalate from there because the threat originally, you know, originated from the notion of you are distancing yourself from the family, which is very scary to me. I value closeness and I'm, I need for us all to be close. And by you being quiet and subdued when you come home from school, that absolutely means that you're pulling away from me, which I can't tolerate. And so I need to have you stop that. And my normal way of communicating with you in a nice way is not working. So I'm going to ramp this up and be very abusive and so that you will, you will see me. You will see my concern and you will change your ways. This is 90% unconscious, so it's not, you know, it's not stated consciously in that way. The way that parents will see it is like, well, my kid was being a, being a snot-nosed kid, and I was telling them, you know, that they can't do that because it's bad manners. But underneath that is this terror of, you know, this deep, deep terror of, of losing people. You will also see in the conflictual and meshed style families, you'll see very repetitive conflict. You will see conflict that you can predict very easily. You'll hear people joke around, you know, every Christmas, everyone knows that at some point, dad and brother are going to get in an argument about Trump or something. These, these kinds of, and it's not comfortable. It's not just like mild debating or something. It's like really uncomfortable, really ugly kind of conflict. 
and it becomes very repetitive. And this is a sign of this enmeshed conflictual situation because, you know, why can't you work it out, one? And two, if you can't work it out, why are you bringing it up? Why, you know, but enmeshed people are highly reactive to each other. They don't have the ability, generally speaking, it's hard for them to retain their own selfhood in the face of that kind of uh, worry about the other person being different from them. Again, they won't acknowledge that, uh, you know, consciously. If you ask them consciously, they'll be like, well, yeah, me and my dad, you know, we have a strained relationship. And frankly, like, he annoys me a lot. Um, and uh, he's, he's a jerk and he's an alcoholic or he's a rageaholic or something. Um, you'll hear him say stuff like that. But when you actually watch them over time, you'll see that the adult child will absolutely engage and, and take part in that conflict with their father. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So what do we do as therapists to treat families like this? Well, it's tough. Um, I learned this the hard way. It, early on, I figured out enmeshed families in my career. I was like, okay, I get the concept. I, you know, I can observe enmeshment in relationships and in families. And early on in my careers, you know, I was just out of graduate school in the mid nineties late 90s, and I'm like, okay, I figured it out. Here's a family in front of me. There's some enmeshment between mom and the oldest son, and um, I see it. And then I was like, okay, I have a good relationship with the kids and the mom, and you know, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to tell them what's up. So I explained to the mom the enmeshment, and after a few sessions, she got it. She was like, you know, I really see it. Thank you so much. You know, I really get it. And I was like, okay, so tiny little step left is to just don't do that. <laughs> you see, I see the enmeshment. You see the enmeshment. So let's just, uh, you know, let's just stop doing it. And uh, that never happened. I worked with a family for years after that. And every session, the mom would come in and say like, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time uh, changing this pattern. It seems a lot more automatic to me than I realized. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that underlying the enmeshed uh, protocol is the deep attachment insecurity that the mother had that, and that the kids were developing as well. So um, I should have spent some time trying to help them heal from that attachment insecurity. But I didn't because I hadn't really integrated all these ideas into one full conceptualization of humans. I, I, I knew attachment theory to some extent, but I had separated it from the structural Mnuchin enmeshment idea. But if when you combine the two, then it, everything makes sense in my book. Um, so yeah, I learned the hard way that it's really hard to treat, it's really tough to treat and change enmeshment. Um, in some ways, disengagement is easier because when people are separated, they don't have a ton of resentment towards each other in general. And it's much easier to warm people up to each other in therapy and to have them, you know, have an exchange where they feel like they're connecting at least kind of to make it feel, you know, like things are moving. It's a lot harder to separate two people who love each other. And that's kind of what enmeshment feels like. But it actually is not that. So uh, so again, before I go into that, I want to say that as I talk about treatment, it's really hard to generalize. And um, being a therapist and knowing what to do and doing the right thing and helping families is, is very 
quirky and individual. And so to prescribe something in this context is, you know, silly. But in general, um, the main thing you want to do is you you have to, because uh, what a lot of therapists will do when they see this, it, they'll see this enmeshment, and I see this all the time, is they'll just be like, stop it. You know, you're, you're enmeshing, you're, you're over-involved. Like they'll, they'll, they'll be with a family and they'll see the parent, let's just say it's a mother, and she's talking for her kid or she doesn't let her, let her kid talk or the kid will have an emotion that is, you know, sad or something and the mom will uh, instantly try to smooth things over and get inside the child's head to change things. Or you have... Um, a 16 year old who is gay and the parents are like, we can't tolerate that or something. And so the knee jerk reaction from a human being and also from a therapist (laughs) who is a human being is to tell the parents, stop it. Don't do that. What are you doing? Stop over talking your kids, stop invading your kids privacy. Stop, stop, stop. But that is totally uh, disrespectful of why the parents are doing it in the first place. So you have to address why the family is doing it in the first place. Why are they enmeshing? Well, because they're, they're insecure about attachments, right? So in the short term, you have to help them to understand and be aware of this attachment insecurity so that they can more functionally meet and soothe their attachment insecurities. And two, over the long term, you have to help people heal from their attachment insecurities so that they don't have the need for any kind of coping skill, right? So that's uh, what you do, and you do it relationally in family therapy. Um, but the other thing is, is you have to replace the bad behavior with a good behavior right away. And since a lot of therapists come from privileged upper, you know, sort of not all, but middle class, upper class, white backgrounds, is the typical answer is like separation boundaries you know you got to you got to be separate you got to individuate you have to you know but that's a very northwestern european notion of 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 you know individuality and that isn't necessarily the way all people operate and it isn't necessarily the best thing for human beings by any means so the solution is so you, let's say you have an enmeshed Mom with an enme- with a enmeshed ten year old boy. This is the family I worked with many years ago. So instead of telling the mom, "Look, stop, you know, g- stop getting in his head, stop requiring him to think about things, stop parentifying him, stop confiding in him," that was a big thing. She she considered him the oldest boy, kind of like a spouse, but not you know sexually, but intellectually. She she didn't have anyone else in her life. The divorce was bad. She would come home from work. She was very stressed out and she would emotionally kind of have the oldest son, the oldest boy in the family was like her companion, her best friend and you know and she would cry with him and you know it's nothing wrong with that in isolation, but if the overall uh, vibe is one of companionship and requirement that the kid cannot just be a kid, the kid has to be a, a, an adult, a little man then that can be very deleterious to the child's personality development because, again, it's that conditional love. The kid wants to be themselves. They want to be loved as a 10-year-old. They don't want to be loved as a companion. It's it's a lot of pressure, too, because 10-year-olds don't, although they act like they can handle it, they can't. So instead of just telling the mom, stop it, you know, it's 
okay, how are you going to love your son and be close to him without having unhealthy boundaries? How do you have healthy boundaries while also having love and security and attachment? Uh, It's a complicated thing. And for some parents, they don't have any idea what that looks like. And so you got to slowly walk them through that. But the key is, is you don't want to strip down their coping mechanism without offering them a healthy alternative. And you don't want to assume that the answer to enmeshment is distance because that's comfortable to you. And it's a knee-jerk reaction for a lot of therapists. It's just like, you know, separate. So don't do that. Um, you also want to help everyone develop a sense of self. Who are Who is everyone? How do people feel? So you'll just go around the room. How do you feel right now? How do you feel? And you, and you highlight the fact that, okay, so each of you has a different feeling. Some of you have similar feelings, but you all have a different way of describing it, and you're all individuals, and can everyone, can everyone hear that? So you, you want to help people tolerate difference. Because a big part of moving away from enmeshment is for individuals in the family to have their own feelings and for other people to tolerate it. So this is what patron Maria did as she said, you know, I have feelings about, you know, the way you judge and criticize and, you know, I don't like the way you uh, don't approve of my marriage, but I still love you and I still want to, you know, be your daughter and I still want us to be in a good relationship. So the whole family, including the kid, by the way, has to cross that um, Rubicon to this completely unknown world where people can disagree and even be upset at each other and voice that without it threatening the closeness. In fact, people can become closer. And Patron Maria talked about that. Is that she feels even closer now after having asserted a boundary with her parents. So isn't that weird that as you establish boundaries, and which is implied to establish a distance, but it doesn't necessarily, that you can actually be more loving to each other, which of course makes sense. Is that, you know, if your parents are in this, you know, frequent motivation and energy around invasion of you, uh, it looks like you're very close, but you're actually in a constant state of pushing them away and resenting them, which doesn't do any good for the closeness, right? So, uh, so yeah, you, so you, you want everyone to develop a sense of who they are, communicating that, having other people tolerate that, and pointing out that, look... You, are you are you guys still together? Do you still love each other? Yes. Okay. So I just want to highlight the fact that you disagree, and there's some tension there, and yet you still have closeness. And someone might say, in fact, I feel closer. You're like, interesting. So when people are allowed to voice their own opinions and their own thoughts and assert themselves, you feel even closer. So I want, we've got to change the narrative there around when people voice concerns, when there is disagreement. Not only does it not mean that you're becoming distant, but it actually means you're getting closer, potentially. You want to establish how to be close without pressuring each other. You want to help people be assertive. You want to help the parents have attachments outside of their children. Uh, A lot of parents are enmeshed with their kids because they don't have any, they don't feel like they have anyone else they can turn to. And so you need to turn to someone and your kids are, right there. And so you end up having sort of companionship attachments with your children. You want to help people uh, heal from their attachment wounds and you want to raise awareness about 
triangulation and enmeshment. You you know do psychoeducation around that, which which I usually do to help everyone understand. Look, this is what it is. You know, so I give a condensed version of everything I basically basically been telling you. So, patron Mia, I hope that answers your question, and I hope to all of you out there out there you better understand enmeshment. Uh, what do you think of this concept? Is your family enmeshed? I'd love to hear if your family is and what it's like because um, I love to hear about family systems. And so, you know, if your family is enmeshed, what does it look like? What do people do? Are you the enmeshed non-conflictual or are you the conflictual type? What is the underlying fear that your family has that is unspoken? What do you think? Have you done anything to change it? Have you done anything to try? What do the triangles look like? Let me know. Go to the website, psychologyinseattle.com. Click on the Contact Us page and email me from there. I am curious. Let me know. And please take care of yourself, as always, and take care of other people and, and heal from your attachment wounds because you deserve it. You really, really do. 